0: Hello fellow music nerds. Welcome to season 2 of the Music Makers and Soul Shakers podcast. I am your host Steve Dawson coming to you from the Henhouse Studio here in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm a Canadian guitarist, songwriter, producer and engineer and I've been living and working here in Nashville for the last four years. A couple of years back I decided to reach out to some of the amazing musicians, engineers and producers I've met along the way to learn some of their more in-depth stories than what I'd been hearing elsewhere. So between March and August of this year, I'll be releasing a new conversation every Wednesday with someone who I feel has been involved with creating great recorded music. Feel free to reach out to me or leave comments at www.stevedawson.ca. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast for free on iTunes. Now let's get down to another episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Hey there, folks. Welcome to episode number 50 of Music Makers and Soul Shakers, the podcast. My name is Steve Dawson. I am your host, and I'm coming to you from the Henhouse Studio here in scenic Nashville, Tennessee. Thanks so much for tuning in again and joining me this week, where I get to sit down and speak with a wonderful musician and guitar player, Mr. Adam Levy. Before we get going here, I need to reach out and ask for some help in keeping this podcast up and running. So far, I've been relying on one-time donations from all of you to help me with the show's overhead, which is much appreciated from all of those who have contributed, and you can still do that. But I've set up a new way that you can be an ongoing supporter of music makers and soul shakers. Over these final six episodes of Season 2, I'd like to encourage you all to head over to the Patreon page that I've started for the podcast. You'll find it at patreon.com slash Makers and Shakers. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Makers and Shakers. Many of you know about Patreon already, but for those who don't, it's a way for you, the listener, to kick in and support the show on a monthly basis rather than a one-time donation even if it's as little as a buck a month. It's simple and secure. I'd like to quickly explain what the overhead is on a show like this. For regular listeners, you'll know that the show's unique content is not just an interview format, but music clips are also used to demonstrate what we talk about on the show. And that's what makes the show cool and different, but it's what also makes the show, on the production side, time-consuming. The editing and everything involved on an absolute minimal basis takes us about four to six hours per episode, which I currently pay someone to do. Then there's the hosting of the files, the launching and promotion of each episode, Which, while not extravagant, is just an expense that I can no longer really handle on my own. I love doing this podcast, and so I'm throwing it out there to you, my listeners from over the last couple of years, to help me by kicking in a little bit each month. As I said, even as little as a dollar a month would help. Um, There are some exclusive rewards that start happening at the $5 per month level and going up from there. And together we can keep the show going. So we're going to see how this Patreon campaign goes, and if we hit our goal over the next six weeks or come pretty close. We will know that there are enough people out there willing and able to keep making it happen, and we'll keep bringing it on for you. Once again, the site can be found at patreon.com slash makers and shakers. As always, you can also make a one-time donation, if you'd rather, at my website and the podcast home at stevedawson.ca. And we can also always use your help in spreading the word by leaving us a review or comments on the iTunes store podcast page thank you all for listening and supporting. Today on the show is Adam Levy. Uh, He's a wonderful musician, guitar player, teacher, singer-songwriter, and many of you would know Adam from his work with Nora Jones, of course, Um, but he's also played with a lot of other people that you may have heard of. Amos Lee comes to mind, Tracy Chapman. Um, He's a very interesting cat who's had some amazing studio and live experiences, and I wanted to sit down and Talk to him about the the path that took him from being a guitar player in San Francisco to working with Tracy Chapman, how that came about, and his experiences in the studio. He's of course the guitar player on a huge hit for her called "Give Me One Reason" that a lot of people would know. And he went on from there to move to New York, where he, through I guess through Kenny Wallace and the drummer, wound up playing in Nora Jones's band and he played on some pretty massive records, possibly the biggest record of the early 2000s when he played on Nora Jones's debut record. Huge, huge album. So I wanted to talk to him about that. And then since then, he's um, sort of pulled himself off the road a bit and took a post teaching at um, the Los Angeles College of Music. Uh, He was teaching for a while, and then he was the chair of the Guitar Performance Department. So I wanted to speak with him about, you know, as a musician coming off the road and and taking what's essentially a, a day job, I guess. I wanted to find out a little bit about that and and you know what that transition is like. I thought that would be really interesting to, to get a chance to, to talk to him about that kind of stuff. Now lately, he's got some really interesting projects. He's playing all the time around Los Angeles. So if you're listening in the LA area, make sure you check out adamlevy.com. That's his website where you will find all of his projects and live performances that are coming up. He's definitely playing at least once or twice a week around the Los Angeles area. He's got a recent album out with a a songwriter named Anthony DaCosta, who I know a little bit from around the Nashville area. And uh, he also made this super cool record a couple years back or maybe a year ago um, with Jay Belleros, who also has been on the show and is obviously an amazing musician and one of the great drummers of our time. And they made this super cool duo record without planning to they were supposed to make another record and it fell through and they ended up making this duo record and it's awesome so i wanted to find out about that too and all that kind of stuff and get into some guitar nerdiness all right now i'd like to tell you about today's sponsor union tube and transistor from vancouver canada they're known for guitar pedals with a focus on quality and simplicity. They build durable, repairable products that are as at home in the studio as they are on stage. I gotta say, I use these pedals all the time in the studio and live. I've got their Moore pedal and a Bender pedal, and they both get tons of mileage on sessions and gigs. Great tones and the best fuzz effects going, too. Check them out at www.uniontone.com. And so, let's get into it. This is my conversation with Adam Levy you've been the chair of the guitar performance department at, um, I think is, is it LA college of music, Los Angeles college of music? Is that right?
1: Yeah. Los Angeles college of music though. I, I recently actually, um, stepped down and I'm, I'm still teaching there, but I, I'm not the chair.
0: Okay. What was the amount of time you were doing that? And, and what exactly was that job?
1: I did it for, I guess, two and a half years. Yeah. And, um, it's it's a big job. It's the kind of, uh, you know, it's about...
0: It was full-on, like full-time commitment, right?
1: Yeah. On paper, it was contracted as a, as a part-time job. It wasn't contracted as 40 hours, but there's no way to not work that many hours because besides the time that you're in the classroom, you know, it was like 50-50 classroom time and then admin time, just managing the staff. There's, I think, nine or 10 teachers that in the guitar department that I was managing. And then, you know, curriculum, the school has been going, undergoing a lot of changes over the last like five years, because they made a transition from being an informal thing started by, you know, jazz oriented players who, you know, wanted to kind of do something different than what like GIT was offering. okay, And so for years, you know, there, there wasn't really, um, a, they didn't offer degrees. There weren't, uh, accrediting agencies, you know, peeking through all their stuff and, you know, the, the stakes were a little lower. It was just this really cool school in Pasadena where you could go and study for a year or two years. And, you know, at one time, Frank, um, Gimbali was running the program oh, okay just very player driven and, you know, trying to crank out young guitar players who have
0: skills. That's a, that's a noble cause. (laughs) Yeah. Um, do they offer a a degree now or anything or is it still pretty informal in that way?
1: Oh no, it's not. So, so that's the change in the last five, you know, like five years they've, they've made a, uh, you know, they're now a college. That's why they they went from being called Llama L.A. Music Academy to Los Angeles College of Music. Okay, and so the stakes are higher, and there's just a lot more T's to cross and eyes to dot and stuff. And I think in the earlier incarnation, if you had some idea for a class, it was a little more freewheeling. Like, oh, you know, I think all of the guitar students should study drums for two quarters. You just kind of like sign off. If you were the department head, as I was, mm-hmm. you would just sign off on that and. And lo and behold, all the guitar students uh, would be taking some drum lessons, which I think they should. But I wasn't able to make stuff like that happen because, you know, there's, you know, a certain number of credits per quarter. And like every, once you're accredited and you're a
0: college, things have to kind of you got a curriculum to deal with and all that.
1: Yeah. So I found ultimately that it, it wasn't a great fit for me because the the part that I loved the most about being at a school is teaching. And, and, um, you know, it was, it was when I took the job, it was, I took all that into consideration, but it, it still, it, t- it took me out of the classroom more than I wanted to be. And ultimately I felt like my mission is to be a teacher more than it is to be an administrator. And yeah. I don't know, the, the the person who followed me up her name is Molly Miller uh-huh. and she's awesome and i think she you know doesn't see it as an either or thing as much as 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 i did i, I it was hard for me to see how i could be the best me in the classroom and also be um, you know, really good at all the other stuff that goes on, you know, behind the
0: scenes. Right. So do you still teach there or are you, are you just out of that whole scene completely? No, no, I,
1: I still do teach there. In fact, we just had our guitar department meeting this morning. Okay.
0: So I'm I'm always interested how people that go from being like road dogs, like I know you were for a number of years, uh, go to, being, to having like a full-time stay-at-home kind of gig, which is what you did when you took on that job. uh, Was that like a weird adjustment for you or like how did you manage to deal with that? Was it like a, were were there family issues too where it was just making way more sense for you to be um, locked down somewhere for a while? Kind of, yeah. I mean, you know, I I don't have kids or anything but um, Because you were touring a hell of a lot for like quite a few years, right? I was, yeah. I was on the road
1: really hard with Nora Jones for seven years and then when that ended, I took a, a short break because of uh, just some personal stuff, and then I started to tour doing more, you know, my own stuff. And I, I kind of I've, I used the Nora uh, gig as a as a kind of leverage point to to start doing a lot more of my own stuff on the road. Gosh, like five, five six, seven years ago, I was touring a lot with another artist out of New York City, and. At a certain point, I, I decided I wanted to just move to LA, and so uh, and and you know, let go of New York. And I think letting go of New York also was a little bit of let, letting go of of that road dog life. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know. And and LA is a good place to kind of settle down. And it's actually my hometown; I grew up here. Yeah, right. You know, when I took the job at the school, they you know they were. They wanted to be sure that I felt that way because I guess uh, you know one or two guys who had been the chair at different times took the job and then proceeded to go right back out on the road like you know and they were just gone all the time and <laughs> if you you know if you're gonna be the chair you, you really you can't you got to be there do that you got hey, you got to be there yeah well, so I, I felt that way and since then I mean I have I've done some touring but it's just been in much shorter bits yeah. and you know a nice thing about a job like that is that you could look at the calendar a year ahead and and you could see where the breaks are because you know you know it's our, this school is a quarter system right so you know like every ten weeks there's a two week break so I would I would as best as I could try to plan you know when other people offer you tours that's something else you have to think about if you want to do it but at least as far as my own stuff that i self-started um i you know i would i'd try really hard to do it at the times when i knew it wouldn't conflict with the school and it's nice because a lot of times as a musician you don't have a framework if somebody says hey what are you doing you know september 2018 (laughs) um you know if you don't have a job like that you would just have you know for me anyway i would have no idea i don't plan nine nine months ahead but you know Um, that kind of put a, a nice frame around everything I did. And, and so in that way it, it was really helpful.
0: That is kind of nice. And are they flexible? Like if you do get a call to go out with an artist on tour, can you drop what you're doing somehow and make that happen? Or do you have to pretty much like when you're in school or in the the quarter or whatever, you're out of the game as far as like touring goes,
1: you know, on paper, you sh- I guess officially you should say no to stuff, but it's, it's a kind of a fluid thing because obviously it's of great benefit to the school to have teachers and, and department heads who are visible. Yeah. Yeah. I mean that, that led lends a lot of
0: credence. Yeah,
1: exactly. Yeah. So it's a fine line. Like Molly, for example, Molly Miller, who's the chair now, she, she tours sometimes with Jason Mraz.
0: Okay.
1: But like this quarter, um, I took the whole quarter off from teaching there at all because I had booked a tour for myself. I went to Australia and Japan to play my own music. Oh, cool. And I kind of just like decided rather than trying to work around and make things complicated and messy for other people, I was just like, hey, I'll just take the quarter off. It's great for the other teachers because uh, you know there's other hours to be picked up. Yeah, and yeah. It's, it's less murky for the kids, like, wait, who's our teacher? Who's teaching this class? Because, <laughs> yeah. you know, in, in a 10-week class, if you're gone four or five weeks, you're just kind of like, you know, wh- what are you doing? So uh, that wasn't something that the school asked me to do. I, I saw it coming. I, I was like, I know I'm going to be gone for this chunk. Why don't I just take the quarter off? And and the school was actually happy I did it that way. And Oh, that's cool.
0: So you keep busy with your own projects, obviously. And like, I looked at your at your website, and you've got seemingly like four or five projects with your name on it right now. Like what's the, uh, and, and I love the record. I've been listening to that, um, Blueberry Blonde record, uh, over the last week and stuff, which I hadn't heard about. I don't know how how I missed that one, but, um, uh, anyway, I I picked that up and I've been checking it out and it's awesome. I'd like to ask you about that, but so all these projects, you've got your own trio and then Mm -hmm. it seems like you're doing collaborations with other, um, players as well. So what's your, like, do you have a kind of a main focus these days, or are you kind of getting involved in all kinds of scenarios just because you can?
1: <laughs> um, more that, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, it's, I I live in Los Angeles. There's just tons of great players here. Yeah. And um, I love doing diff- different stuff um you know just in the last week i played a gig where i sang my songs you know i'm yeah. i'm there as a singer songwriter with electric bass and drums um, in an underground parking garage in Santa Monica, as part of this series that's curated by a, a band here called We Are the West. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, people who were at that show may have no idea that I'm an improviser and a composer, and you know, I'm part of a whole other world. Right. So, you know, and so, you know, a couple of days later, I did a, a show um, with a guy named Frank Potenza who is the chair of the guitar department at USC and uh, a really incredible jazz guitar player jazz with a capital j yeah. just like such such an incredible player uh-huh.
0: like in a like in a Joe Pass kind of way or more modern
1: yeah well it's interesting you say that uh or you ask that you asked that I mean, he actually studied under like Joe Pass was his mentor oh, okay and so he spent a lot of time with Joe, and uh, has recorded a tribute album to Joe. And you know he has other stuff up his sleeve. Like when when Frank and I got together last week to rehearse for our, um, for the gig that we played. You know I went to his office at USC, and it's just a, it's a it's just a perfect portrait of Frank because like he's on the wall. He's got this you know those like guitar hanging hooks that you hang your yeah. guitar on. Yeah. So, you know, there's this, like, super high-end Buscarino arch top just hanging there, like, you know, maybe the nicest arch top you could ever lay your hands on. Like, so that's there. And he's like, oh, you want to play this? Like, you know. <laughs> and then, you know, but behind him is this huge kind of, like, psychedelic poster of Hendrix. Okay. Um, you know, uh, Frank grew up in Rhode Island, and he, he got to see Hendrix, like, three times. He's, he's a little older than I am. So, he, you know, he you know he saw zeppelin he saw hendrix so that's all the stuff that that kind of lit a fire for him as a guitar player okay but at the same time you know when he when he took up jazz i would say you know if any if his, if he's coming from any one kind of place in you know, on jazz guitar it's definitely from the joe pass thing okay
0: how do you interpret your role when you're doing like a, a guitar duet with a guy like that like how do you step into that situation and fit in like what's the what's the approach for you
1: I have to go the places that the other person's not going I mean this has kind of been a theme that, I mean I've had to kind of learn this over and over again I'm gonna back up for a minute like uh, it's like when I first moved to New York and I was living there in the like kind of late 90s. I got to be part of this group called Killer Joey, with uh, Joey Barron, right. the drummer. Yep. And the other guitar player was Steve Cardenas. Well, he's just incredible. Uh-huh. And he's always been kind of a somebody I've looked up to. And anyway, we both play ES-335s. Uh-huh. And, kind of came up listening to similar stuff he's a, a few years older than i am so we're both in joey's band and i remember like after the first or second gig we did joey calling us both and saying hey you know do one of you guys have a guitar that's not an es335 <laughs> because it's kind of like a little you know i want to have two really distinctive voices and so i wound up borrowing a friend of i didn't it's the only guitar i had at the time really? this is yeah yeah and um like, I mean, literally, I didn't have an, I had, had one guitar and that was it. So a friend of mine offered, he had like a Fernandez Telecaster and he's like, Hey, try this. This might be cool. And that, that's what I used for a while. And, but besides the, just the, you know, the wood and the wires, um, I realized that I had to not only pl- get a different tone, but just, I couldn't play the stuff that Steve was playing, even though we're, you know, he's kind yeah. of, yeah, I get it. Yeah. So, you know, when I play with somebody like Frank or like, you know, I have this regular quartet I play with, with a guitar player named Rich Hinman. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I just, it it's great as a guitar player to play with somebody else in a quartet, like two guitars, bass and drums, because it really does push you to find the stuff that's not that stuff. So, I mean, from like one thing I did, we, we were playing, a. A kind of a blues, I, I can't remember which tune it was, but with, with Frank, sorry, on this recent jazz quartet gig, mm-hmm. you know, and I went and used my bridge pickup, which is, you know, something that Frank w- wouldn't do. Um, I, and th- I think his archtop didn't have a bridge pickup. Probably which, not, you
0: know, eh?
1: yeah. Yeah, but just that kind of tone, you know, just so it's just something simple like that, kind of, even by virtue of me flipping that switch, put me in a different headspace of the kind of playing that I would
0: play right. once, once I'm there. Now at the, at the opposite end of the spectrum, you've got this duo that I mentioned, um, Blueberry Blonde with Jay Bellaros. Is it always a duo or do you ever, is that like a thing that you add bass to as well or? No, it's, okay. it's,
1: it's always a duo. It actually, well, huh, <laughs> that record was really like a, a phoenix from the ashes. We we had intended to make an organ trio record with Larry Goldings, mm-hmm. actually, oh. and that that is a trio. Um, you can see a, c- a couple years ago when I was the chair of, of the guitar uh, the guitar department at LACM, the three of us did a full length concert, and it's the whole concert's up on YouTube, and that's me and Larry Goldings and Jay, and we, we'd played together a few times. And we had booked this date to record, mm-hmm. and some, something came up for Larry, and I asked Jay, like, "What do you want to do? Do we <laughs>
0: really? You know, that's what, cool." Yeah. Man. Uh, so so you just, that's what we did. You just showed up, went in, and brought in tunes, and 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 was that all done in one day? I think it was
1: all done in one day.
0: Yeah. it, but that's so freeing. Like as a guitar player, just having somebody like that holding it down, and you can kind of go anywhere right like there's no there's no parameters whatsoever
1: yeah exactly um yeah it was super freeing if you think about what bass players do you know half of it is harmonic and half of it's rhythmic and you know kind of drive and so jay kind of took up the slack on the rhythmic stuff by you know using the low end of the kid in different ways and yeah he's so good at that He's so good at that. He's (laughs) like an orchestrator. I mean, that record was done live. Like we're just in a room, you know, facing each other with very minimal baffling, and everything you hear is what happened. And the only stuff that we did is kind of any studio trickery, where there's no overdubs. But a couple times, just for sonic stuff, we would reamp stuff or like send something out back out into the room and mic the room or you right. know we we wanted it to be an interesting listen and not just like a board tape yeah. from you know Well some uh, of the
0: coffee. some of the guitar sounds almost sound like you're playing I don't know if it's your 335 or if you've got like an arch top or something but but are you micing the guitar as well cuz it sounds like this weird mix of acoustic and electric on some of it
1: Yeah oh man I can't tell you Come on. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I mean, a couple of the tunes are actually acoustic guitars. Um, oh, you know, okay. flat flat top guitars. Like um, there's a song called "What the Day Will Bring," uh-huh. and, and that really is on a, just a flat top guitar. So there were t- there were two guitars that I. Uh, three guitars I used, I used an old, like 1939 OM-18, um, that belonged to the, the, both of those acoustics actually belong to the guy who owns the studio. I brought some guitars and then I saw like he had this, he had a 1939 OM-18 and uh, I think, yeah, I think that's what it was. It was incredibly beautiful guitar. Uh, and then he had like a, LO. I mean, I'm so bad with like guitar models. I but
0: too, it, actually. I, I have no idea what most of them
1: are. It was a small body Gibson, you know, from like pr- kind of pre-war and then a pre-war Martin. And I used those on like uh, what the day will bring is, I think that's the Martin, but then like on uh, You're Not My Baby, that is, uh, I have a 1959 ES330 with just one P90. Oh, okay. And that's that guitar. And I, I don't know that we mic did it in in the intentional way but because of the way i'd set up where i'm doing vocals
0: and guitar at the same time getting some of that
1: yeah i think you're just probably getting the
0: guitar into the vocal mic that's probably exactly what that is yeah yeah as far as like your songwriting goes like is that something you've done all along or was that like a more recent thing that you started doing like in the last few years like how has that come into play for you
1: yeah um it's relatively recent. I'm 51 now. I've been playing guitar since I was probably 11, so 40 years of guitar playing, and songwriting. I started doing in the early 2000s when I was in my mid 30s. So, okay. yeah, it was it was really something I I kind of stumbled into out of I was touring with Nora Jones, yeah. and you know, like when you hang around a bunch of you know, before that gig, before I was touring with her, most of my friends were playing instrumental music, and you know, listening and composing, and like kind of in a world of instrumental stuff, and and I'd always been kind of a side guy for songwriters. You know, that's always been part of what I've done, but I never thought I would be a songwriter. And then when I was touring with Nora, she and the, and the bass player Lee Alexander were started you know getting excited about songwriting even even though they had come from a, a kind of a jazz place as well and so mm-hmm. you're on tour you're on a bus you're hanging out with people and you know you just hey what are you listening to and what are you excited about and people just got okay. more and more uh excited about songs and songwriters and you know I had always heard about Towns Van Zant but I'd never checked him out yeah I'd always heard about the band you know yeah. the um and but I never, I knew the like two songs that you hear on the radio, but I would never done any kind of deep dive on the band. And even Dylan, I have to say, I was a very late comer to Dylan.
0: Um, so I had a lot to catch up on.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I started writing, and I found pretty quickly that that I liked it, and that so I just kind of went for it. And and so that was like in the early two thousands. I I kind of got started, and I made my first record. Where I actually sang my own songs, I think in like 2006.
0: Okay, cool. You mentioned that you grew up in LA, and and um, we've talked a little bit about your influences and stuff. And obviously, like on that Blueberry Blonde record, a lot of your blues influences come out mixed with mm. uh, mixed with other things. But what mm. what were you into then? If you weren't, if if you hadn't really heard. Dylan and the band, obviously things like that were were not on your radar. So what what were you checking out? Like what was what were your first influences as a as a kid? When I was
1: first coming up, I I loved the later Beatles stuff, like um, Abbey Road. My yeah. my mom, I guess, had had it or something in the house. So when I was first figuring out, like that, I could work the record player myself. The stuff that I got excited about and would listen to in headphones over and over was like Abbey Road and this Cat Stevens record called Teaser in the Fire Cat sure. and Simon and Garfunkel. So, I mean, it wasn't that I wasn't into people writing songs, but I, I just, I, you know, there was like very specific things and i had I, kind of focused on just those records and hadn't hadn't done like a family tree thing where like, if you put, you know, Simon and Garfunkel here, you'd realize like, Oh, just, you know, half a branch over is all this other stuff. Like, you know, if you're listening to late Beatles and Simon and Garfunkel, but you completely missed Dylan, that's like a pretty big (laughs) blind spot, but I I don't know what happened, but then you just went with what what you had around. Well, basically. Yeah. I mean, we, you know, there was no,
0: what about blues and country and stuff like that?
1: Yeah, well, that okay. So that kind of came through my uncle. My mom's brother was was an amateur guitar player, and like you know, he had taken some lessons at McCabe's and stuff. And so he was into like Doc Watson and Chet Atkins and Merle Travis. Yeah. And you know, there was this kind of time in the late seventies, early eighties where duo guitar things were like. There were just tons of records. There was like there was a Doc and Merle record and there's a Chet
0: and Doc and Chet and Merle. Yeah. And you know, like there's just a bunch of those. I love those. I love those records where they're like talking through half the songs.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, totally. And you know, I hadn't thought about that till just now. But you know, here I am in 2017. You know, and always excited about playing with other guitar players. And you know, sure as shit, you know, talking, talking through the gig, (laughs) and you know, joking around and stuff. I have to say, you know, maybe Chester and Lester is the like you know, seed of my whole musical <laughs> life. I never thought about it. But, you know, so a lot, a lot of the, the kind of country stuff, I guess,
0: came through there. And then... So if you've been listening to, like, Beatles and Cat Stevens and Simon Garfunkel, and then suddenly you hear Doc Watson and Chet Atkins, did it blow your mind from a guitar playing point of view? Because that's pretty, like, it's like a whole other level of guitar playing, really. Yeah, it, no, it no, totally no knock, no knock on the Beatles and... Paul Simon as guitar players, but like you know going from from the Beatles to chet atkins is it's a big leap in technical stuff, yeah,
1: and also the the ratio is different, like on a Beatles record, you know there's just like half a dozen incredible guitar when the guitar moments happen, they're just like magic, but yeah. you have to kind of wait wait for them, and on th- those records, it's like the whole record is guitar <laughs> magic, the whole thing yeah. you know. So I, that's when I started to go like oh the guitar is something you could be serious about. I didn't realize up until that point that like there were serious guitar players. I just thought, you know, you,
0: you were a guy in a band.
1: Yeah. Right. Yeah. So um and then that kind of led to you know there was a there was a record store near my really close to my house like a block from where we lived when I was you know, old enough to have like a paper route, so I'm like 13, 14, or whatever. What What part of LA were you in? Uh, it's a town called Thousand Oaks, which is part of Ventura County. Okay. And I lived a block away from this music store chain called Music Plus. And, um, you know, I could, I would go there to get the new issue of Guitar Player Magazine when it came out every month. And sure. uh, they had a bargain bin. And, and so there was this kind of crosstalk between the bargain bin and. And Guitar Player magazine because I would read an interview with like George Benson, yeah. who you know who I'd never heard of, but I'd see him in the magazine, and then of course I couldn't afford his brand new record, but I could a- afford you know the the George Benson record in the bargain bin, which is actually a hipper record totally. because it's like from when he was playing jazz and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So I got this record called the George Benson cookbook and that was in the bargain bin. Another record in the bargain bin was the first Dixie Dregs record. Freefall. Nice. Uh, Free fall.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and another record I got from the, that bargain bin was, it was a Larry Coryell record with Schofield and they were playing ovation guitars. Really? Yeah. It's called tributaries. Um, it's, there's actually three guitar players on it. It was Joe Beck, and Larry, I knew Larry Coriel's name from because he had a column in Guitar sure, Player. Yeah. And I, I, I think i had even seen Schofield's name, you know, maybe like as far back as when he had played on, you know, a Miles Davis record or something. Mm-hmm. And um, so I was like, oh, here's all these guys and the record is two ninety nine, dollars You know, I could afford it. Being close to a record store and having a little bit of pocket money for my paper route and having Guitar Player magazine as my kind of like guide because i I didn't have an older brother or you know Mm -hmm. really anybody there was only a couple of really serious young guitar players in my town who were like approximately my age and who i would turn to for stuff and they and they turned me on to stuff too there was this guy howie agronoff who turned me on to this jeff beck blow by blow record that i completely freaked out about and then of course I went to the bargain bin and I found they had a copy of Truth which is an incredible record with Rod Stewart and Ron Wood and Nicky Hopkins so
0: and were you the kind of guy that would like sit down and figure stuff out note for note like were you figuring out Jeff Beck licks and Chet Atkins licks or were were you just kind of like slurping it all in in a bigger picture kind of way
1: I think more of a bigger picture kind of way I learned a few solos note for note, but I was a little bit more just kind of trying to grab at whatever I could. And so that might be a little bit of Chet, a little bit of Jeff Beck, a, you know, a little bit of something. I mean, literally the, the song Something by the by the Beatles. Yeah. Trying to
0: kind of mash it all up. Uh, I mean, I'm not trying to mash it up. Were you playing in a band or anything? Like, Did you have friends that were playing drums and bass and stuff or... Were you on your own?
1: No, I had a band. I had. A, I was in a, in a band in high school. And um, yeah, it's funny. I was always the kind of rhythm guy. I liked playing rhythm. And I liked playing hooks. Like if there was a song that just had like a little hooky guitar part um, I would be assigned to like play the rhythm guitar, and then like whatever the, the hook. Hook, hook was. Yeah. And this this guy Howie would would usually uh, take the solos because he just had uh, skills beyond his years. Okay. So it's, that's That's
0: that's a great gig though. That's a great thing to learn. Like that that job within a band is like it's totally key, right? And probably played into your into your gigs later.
1: Yeah, for sure. At the time, you know i didn't appreciate it as much, I just thought like well i 'm the second best guitarist in the band, so i'll play that that stuff with the second best. you know i 'm not the quarterback i'm the i'm the lineman or whatever yeah but um but actually, it taught me so much about playing melodically and about grooving. And, you know, coming back around to where we started about you know, talking about teaching and stuff, it's like when I teach kids at, at, at the college or, you know, even in – you know, I teach privately outside of the school as well. You know, the stuff that I want to instill in people is like this is the stuff that actually has the most value – in a band it, it, it won't necessarily get you the most hits if you're trying to do stuff on youtube or instagram or whatever mm-hmm. playing rhythm guitar and playing the melodic hooks isn't the way to draw attention to yourself but you you're so essential it's actually you're in the rhythm section you're 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 yeah, doing man. more like what the drummer does or what the bass player does and without that well you know uh so I, I really try and encourage people yeah. to to have that foundation, and then if you if you want to do flashy stuff too, that's cool. But mm-hmm. that that was an incredible foundation for me, and I think you're right. It's like that's really um, helped define who who I am musically for sure.
0: Did you play in any bands like in in those early like sort of high school days where you were playing outside of L.A. or was it all just sort of like playing at? functions and whatever gigs you could get as as kids. In high school, yeah, we just pl- like we would play parties on the
1: weekends and occasionally we'd get to go play like at another high school or yeah. something. R- really there wasn't a, a, a lot going on. When I first started gigging um like in high school I joined the the jazz band uh-huh. which was also sort of the like we'd play concerts but we'd also play like basketball games and stuff. <laughs> play like whip it and and, uh, we will rock you and stuff like that. Um, and then, you know, from that, from being around some of the old, I was a freshman, but being around some of the kids who were like juniors and seniors, they were already playing as part of a working big band, which was this band in, in Thousand Oaks called the the Dave Pierce Stardust Orchestra, I think. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so that band actually started to play, like, real gigs, you know, like I I had to buy a, a secondhand tuxedo and <laughs> – um, Those kind of gigs. Yeah. And, you know, we were starting to play private parties and not out of town, but out for, for sure outside of our my little yeah, town where, yeah. where I was living. And But I was old enough to drive so I could go do these gigs, and my, my parents were really supportive. And, and then right out of high school I went to this – school in L.A. that's not there anymore, but it was called the Dick Grove School of Music. And um, I joined a band there that was like kind of a Tower of Power kind of band with five horns and a great rhythm section. And that band did start to do some gigs out of town. I think the first... like gig i ever did where i had to get on a plane to go play was with with that horn band which was called drive all night okay and um we 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 played some private parties and some you know concerts and stuff and Yeah.
0: yeah in the early 90s or i don't know exactly when but but eventually you moved to san francisco i'm just wondering why San Francisco? Like, what drew you to to that town? Like, was was there a gig happening there, or was it just a move that you wanted to make?
1: No, there wasn't a gig there. I barely knew anybody there. Uh, I was just kind of felt like I wanted to get out of my hometown for a little bit. I mean, in retrospect, L.A. would have been a perfect place to just stay and hang out because, as a working musician, like. You know, so much of the work yeah. is here. Yeah, But I, I don't know. I felt like I wanted to get, you know, everybody kind of at some point feels like they le- need to leave their hometown. So I was feeling that. And, and the, the woman that I was seeing at the at the time, I mean, this would have been 89, so I was in my early 20s, Okay. Um, got accepted to school up at Davis, UC Davis. And I didn't want to move as far away as, as that because I, I just – that didn't seem like it would be good for – my career. So I moved to San Francisco, which seemed like a place where I was close enough to Davis that we could see each other Mm -hmm. on the weekends. And I could still come back to LA if there was, you know, stuff to do. And, you know, in retrospect, it turned out to be a really good thing because, you know, in LA, I hadn't developed much of a sense of hustle because I grew up here. I knew a lot of people, things kind of came easily. Mm -hmm. You know, and when I moved to San Francisco, I didn't know anybody, so there weren't no gigs were going to fall in my lap at any time. I, right. I had to like go out and meet new people and be more. It's hard, isn't it? Hard. Yeah. yeah, I would. I would encourage any young musician to do it. Uh, you know, to do whatever it takes to to turn up the hustle in wherever you are. You don't necessarily have to move to a new town, but that's what did it for me. I, it yeah. kind of like snapped me out of this, you know, laid back LA hometown thing to like, oh, shit, nobody knows who I am here. Yeah, So I started going to jam sessions and, you know, doing all the things that you would do to, to meet
0: people. Yeah, that's cool. Is that So how, how did you end up um, playing with Tracy Chapman? Because I know around that time, you started playing on, I, I don't know if you played on a bunch of her records, but you played on at least that one record. Uh, so how did that happen?
1: Yeah, so I I played on an, an, the album was called New Beginning and it had that song Give Me One Reason which is a that radio was huge. Hit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was the darndest thing. Um that happened because in the early 90s when I was living in San Francisco, I was friends I became friends with Charlie Hunter. Yeah. who was really like on fire at that point. He had already made a couple of records for Blue Note. And he had started T.J. Uh, yeah, T.J. Kirk.
0: Kirk band, right? That, that, they were, yeah. They were going around then, probably.
1: Yeah. yeah. So, the, I mean, those were all my friends, Will Bernard and John Schott and Charlie. And, you know, I mean, it just kind of shows you how different the time was. But, you know, at that time, Charlie Hunter's trio was so successful that they went on a tour where they were opening for Tracy Chapman. And, you know, Tracy is really a, a pop artist, you know, a folk pop artist. Yeah. And, you know, but Charlie was so on fire that it made sense to, to bring someone like that out, even though, wow, you know, that would
0: never quite, happen now.
1: Yeah, to have like an instrumental, funky jazz trio opening for somebody like that. I, I don't think you'd see that today. Yeah. But um, she she liked Charlie. Tracy liked Charlie. And I guess towards the end of, the, of that run, she said, hey, you know, I, I'm looking for a new guitar player for my band. Is Would you be interested in? in joining my band and Charlie said, you know, I, thanks, but I, I'm really happy doing my own thing, but I think you should call Adam Levy. I think he would be a great fit for you. And, um, so I auditioned. It was my first real, I mean, I'd done smaller kind of sort of auditions before, but this is my first, like, you know, learn these six songs, show up at
0: this rehearsal studio. So was she based in the Bay area, Bay area too?
1: yeah okay so you know I learned all the songs and I was really nervous and <laughs> I went to the audition and I played the songs and then after the songs she was like hey let's just try this or that and we, we wound up jamming like for another little while mm-hmm. and I, I figured that was a good sign that you know yeah. it was you know I, that she dead playing with me and Doug hanging out and uh, I was like, okay, well, see you later. And like a couple <laughs> weeks went by, I didn't hear anything, and I guess they were auditioning other people. I just had no experience with anything like that. But it, you know, then I got a call like, okay, now learn these other forty songs, and uh, you know, be at this rehearsal space at this time, and we're going to start rehearsing for a tour and a record. And so, wow, it's, but. Cool. You know, yeah. To answer your question, it really was because of Charlie Hunter that I found myself there.
0: Nice. And and was that like a situation where you were touring a ton before you made that record, or, or was the record first and then a bunch of touring?
1: Well, it was no. It was a bunch of rehearsing first. Because mm-hmm. um, she was she, she was
0: pretty huge at that time, right?
1: Yeah, and she wanted us to know all the material that she'd recorded previously. Mm-hmm. And, and at the same time, be working on this new batch of songs that she wanted to record.
0: I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites.
1: So the idea was we would rehearse for a while, get the new songs worked up, get all of her older songs worked up, and then we would go on a tour where we would play kind of a mix of her hits and then some of the newer songs, and that that would tighten up the band so that when we were recording, you know, we were band with yeah. some, uh, you know, grit. Yeah. And so that's what we did. We were we wound up rehearsing for months. I think really on and on. Yeah, like on and off for about six months. Holy shit. Uh, Which is, yeah. I mean, every time I think about that, I I wonder, like, is that really what? And I'm like, yeah, that's really what we did. Um, You know, it's not that the songs were that hard, but she's really particular. She wanted things to really sound a certain way and she wanted us to get to know each other so mm-hmm. but it was it wasn't like a boot camp thing where it's like okay we got a week to learn 40 songs and then hit the road i mean i know musicians who've had to do things like that sure. and hats off but this was much more kind of very gradually getting to know each other and i that's when i first started singing i hadn't sung at all uh, prior to that, but everybody in the band was a strong singer and Tracy really wanted to have this strong vocal blend where we could have, you know, four or five voices behind her. Mm-hmm. So I started taking some singing lessons and learning how to blend. I, I wasn't writing any songs, but I was, it was the first time I'd ever like sung on a stage before I was in her band.
0: Wow. Really throw, throwing you to the wolves.
1: <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, after then we made the record and then i got to be honest i got kind of cold feet i saw like oh wow there's gonna be a ton of road ahead yeah and i felt like i wanted to stay in the bay area and you know stay kind of more in my comfort zone I, i wasn't really ready for the what was to come which and and it was even bigger than i knew it was going to be because i at that time, she had already made three records, and this was her fourth record. Uh-huh. And you know, you don't know if there's going to be a hit single when you make a record. And nobody, I think, when we made the record, thought that "Give Me One Reason" was going to be a hit single. Right. It was? It's like a very much it's a blues, basically. Exactly, it's a blues, and it wasn't even a new song. It was something she had done like as an encore song for years. And just never considered recording, I guess. And wow. you know, it was like that classic thing where the producer, when they were getting ready to make the record, he's like, well, what else? What you, else, got? else? <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and she's like, well, I, I, I got this song. And he was like, yeah, let's record that. And then that, you know, that becomes the hit. So that tour went on for a pretty long time because it was on the strength of a very powerful single. Mm-hmm. Um. And so, a guitar player named Linda Taylor wound up doing that tour. You just bowed out. You said, I, "I'm not into this." Yeah. Wow. And that that was career wise probably not a good move. I, I think in retrospect, I wish I I. I mean, I don't have a regret about it, but if mm-hmm. I could advise my younger self, I would I would say just like go for it because you never know what doors will open and what. You know what adventures there are, and so I didn't do that and and really i I balked at doing anything like that for for a while more and so that was like ninety six mm-hmm. ninety five ninety six and then shortly after that i I moved to New York
0: about that record. I just had one more question like you, sure. you 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 talked about like really gelling as a band and spending all that time like working as a band, but it was the sort of early nineties tail end of like Really, you know, isolated recording situations. Was it was that record done pretty live, like with a real band feel, or was it you know like was it a real overdubby kind of situation? It's hard to tell with that record. Actually, it was a
1: very uh, very live thing. Like yeah, cool. that track in particular. Give me one reason we we recorded it as a band and. To the best of my recollection, that solo was the solo that I played live with the band. Mm -hmm. And then I went back and overdubbed a a guitar Leslie track. Because at at that time, we didn't have a keyboard player. Yeah, And then after the fact, I think there is actual Hammond organ was added on top. So some of the stuff you hear, if you listen, like, you wouldn't hear it on the radio, but if you listen in headphones, you'll hear some Leslie guitar and some actual hammond okay but but the meat and potatoes, the bass, the drums the rhythm guitar is Tracy, that was all done live cool. and uh most of that record was done that way and I know I know what you mean in that era, things could be very much unorganic, shall we say. Very nice, yeah, uh, uh, unorganic. But that that record was about as organic as as you could do in that time, yeah, for right, sure. Cool. And and there's no click track. If if you listen to "Give Me One Reason" from the start and fast forward <laughs> to the finish, you will not you will not disbelieve me when I say that there's no click track. <laughs> okay.
0: As a sideman, like a guitar player, does playing on a song. 'Cause like as a relative unknown, which you were at the time, suddenly you play on like a massive radio hit. Did that have an impact for you, like as a session guy or a side guy? Like were people going like, I want that guy, did that happen for you?
1: Not as much as you would think. And and that's why I say I think it was as far as career-wise. Wrong-headed of me not to go on the tour because what happened was she made a music video for that song and i'm not in the music video linda taylor's in it playing my parts mm-hmm. and linda taylor's on the road with her you know playing you know big shows and stuff so i think not it wasn't necessarily widely known even that you know unless you had the record in your hand and read the liner notes you wouldn't know it was me because all of the optics you know yeah. i wasn't in part of that and so um no i mean it did lead to some things but much like later when i played with Nora jones that has led and still has still leads to me getting calls you know because yeah. you know it was a different thing I, with tracy chapman i played on one record and and we did do a short tour, actually, before the record came out. After all that rehearsing, mm-hmm. we did this kind of under-the-radar tour where we mostly played, like, college campuses. So um, it wasn't like – I don't even think tickets were sold. I mean, I think we just played these kind of under-the-radar shows on college campuses to further tighten up the band. Whereas with Nora, there was a huge amount of publicity – and you know late night tv shows and um you know three records three record cycles yeah. th- uh, three three dvds i, I was You're in a, you all, know yeah I, you know if you if you saw any kind of video of nora jones doing any kind of music for about five or six years if you look you know 10 degrees to her right i'm there yeah. so that that helped my career as far as like opportunities for recording sessions and stuff because it was such a you know more clear that oh that that's that guy right.
0: um so tell me about the nora gig like how did that ha- like that first record come away with me is She was an unknown, and I, I, you know, I, I don't really know what was going on with the whole thing, but and but she was signed to Blue Note, and I'm sure they had expectations for her, but I can't imagine that anyone dreamed that that record would sell however million copies it did. Um, Yeah, was one of the big. I'm sure it was the biggest record of the year, and you know, one of the biggest records of the decade. Uh, So, can you tell me a bit about that, like how the gig came about, and, and what were your initial thoughts with being in the band and all that kind of stuff?
1: Yeah. I met Nora through a drummer friend of mine, a guy named Kenny Wallison. I don't know if you know Kenny. Yeah,
0: yeah, totally.
1: And, you know, Kenny is somebody that I had known for years. I met, When I first moved to San Francisco in 1989, just by happenstance, Kenny Wallison was my neighbor. So he was really? one of the
0: first people I met. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I love his drumming, man. He's phenomenal. Oh,
1: yeah. And he was phenomenal in 1989. I mean, yeah. that's like... You know, almost thirty years ago, I first heard. I, I walked by this garage and I heard this incredible drumming coming through the garage door, and I just knocked. Really? You know, because I mean, this is like what I was saying when I first moved to San Francisco. I didn't know anybody. I had to like do things. You know, I had to like be more outgoing. So I interrupted this poor guy. He's trying to you know practice in there, and I just start. I'm starting hammering on the door, and he opens the door, and he's like, "What? What? <laughs> like, who are you? What do you want?" um i mean he was he was very nice but you know what i mean it's like you when you you get into a zone and somebody's like knocking on the door it's like "Uh." annoying yeah so you know a few years later kenny moved to new york and you know was playing you know real gigs out there and then i I moved to new york a couple years after kenny so when i first got to new york kenny was one of the first people that i you know reached out to because he was he had a kind of a head start on me. He was playing gigs and he was kind of plugged in and, and he had a great apartment in Brooklyn where we could get, there was a lot of jams that went on at Kenny's place. He was living in this kind of industrial ish, you know, Riverside neighborhood in
0: Brooklyn. And uh, before it was hip,
1: man, you have no idea. Was, Was
0: it pretty sleazy back then? Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it was. It really
1: was. Um, so I was hanging out with Kenny, and then he had. It's kind of a long story that I'll, I'll try and keep it short. But anyway, he had basically he had met Nora when she was still at school at at North Texas because he had been on the road and and did some kind of did a concert at North Texas with, I think with Mark Johnson, the bassist. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not sure, but anyway, so he Kenny happened to meet Nora when she was this, you know. 18 year old kid studying jazz piano at, at North Texas and, and singing and had a chance to hear her sing something and was like, Why are you going to school? You should move to New York and do be be a musician. And you know, him and and Jesse Harris and I think Richard Julian. They they all happened to meet Nora early on and they encouraged her to stop studying and just go do it. And so I was in New York and I had gone to see Kenny's. Kenny used to have his own band called the Mm Wallisons, and they were playing at the 55 bar and I went to see them one night and I sit down and, uh, this young woman sits down next to me and uh, before the set, Kenny came over and he gave me a big hug and he gave her a big hug and he introduced us and he said, Oh, Nora, this is Adam. Adam, this is Nora. You guys, you guys should meet. You guys should make some music. And, um, so we we she and I chatted and talked about music we liked and records and I gave I you know I wrote I literally wrote down my phone number on a like a cocktail napkin and it was just like here nice. call me sometime and yeah. you know I just figured any friend of Kenny's has to be you know yeah. somebody that that you want to make music with and so that's how I met her and then we just started playing some you know there at that point she didn't there was no Blue Note records. There was no management. There was nothing. There was she was just this young person who had who had done exactly that thing of like she dropped out of music school and and come to New York and.
0: Was she just playing standards and stuff back then, or was she writing her own tunes?
1: Uh, she may have been writing a little bit, but basically standards. The first gig I ever played with her, she didn't play even piano on it. We got hired to play background music at a cocktail party. and... <laughs> she just sang, and Uh she just called tunes. She would be like, hey, do you know Night and Day in B-flat? Yeah, okay, go. So we would play. And so that was how we started, was playing standards, and then she had a brunch gig for a while at at this uh, restaurant on Washington Square. And so it was all that, but little by little she was starting to write, and she got to know Jesse Harris and Richard Julian and these guys in New York who were really great writers and got inspired to start writing her own stuff. And then that that led to, you know, meeting uh, Bruce Lundball, the head of Blue Note, and uh-huh. getting a little money to make a kind of like a a record on spec, just to kind of see, like, okay, what could you do if you had a small bit of money and could record a few songs? And she did that, and they loved it, and then they gave her like a proper, you know, record mm-hmm. deal, and yeah literally the rest is history but but at the time it didn't you know everything was just kind of touch and go and
0: Mm -hmm. what i noticed with that record which i hadn't listened to it for a long time but but i pulled it out and was listening to it and looking through the credits and it's there's a huge cast of characters on it there's like kenny wallison plays on it but also brian blade plays on it and i think there's three bass players and there's you and kevin bright and Bill mm. Frizzell's on it. Like how mm. how was all that juggled? Like were you guys were were there just a huge cast of characters coming and going the whole time?
1: <laughs> I'm just imagining this, like you know, me and Bill Frizzell and Kevin Bright on a bench, and you know somebody <laughs> comes out with a clipboard and like, uh, uh, Mr. Bright, Mr. Bright, uh, you're on. No, deck. It, yeah, no, it really wasn't like that. I mean, the, the thing about that record is that it was actually made in phases. Um, oh. The initial record was produced by Craig Street. I don't know if you know yeah, Craig. Yeah, yeah. Nora knew his work from stuff he had done with Cassandra Wilson. And um, I think he might have... Maybe she knew that Chris Whitley record, um, Dirt Floor. Maybe I, I don't know. I know that record. I love that record. I love but that record I think, too. But somehow Nora was aware of Craig Street and, and Blue Note was excited, and they thought that would be a, a good combination. And so they went and recorded a whole album, and that was done without me. Uh, that was done with Kevin Bright and Bill Frizzell. And um, and when it was when it all was said and done, and they turned the record in, I think Blue Note didn't understand it like it didn't sound like what they thought it was going to sound like and to get the whole story you'll have to interview nora or craig street because i honestly i wasn't part at this point i i was not part of the band at this point Mm -hmm. um but for whatever reason Uh, It was decided that they would go back in the studio and and recut some things or cut some different things with a different producer. And they they hired Arif Mardin, who was a legendary, you know, whose name I I knew from a million records, really. And uh, at that point, Nora brought me back into the fold. I had actually moved back to San Francisco for a year and was not playing that much music and i was writing for guitar player magazine and and that's a whole other chapter but to to the point of what you're asking about with nora i was living in san francisco and she called me up and she's like could you come to new york and play on this record i'm working on and and so i i did and that's when we recorded nightingale Mm -hmm. uh which has brian blade on it we recorded come away with me and we recorded the hank williams
0: song um as a cold cold heart that's on that record is that that one exactly right. yeah exactly and so T- can you tell me a bit about that that session like wh- how was it done like where did you do it in new york and and what was the setup like
1: um we did it at a place in soho that i don't think is there anymore but it was called sorcerer sound on mercer street uh-huh and it was kind of a funky studio in the i mean n- n- not funky in the sense that they had all the best gear like it was one of the more upscale studios i had been in up to that point in the sense of the kind of mics and mm-hmm. the desk and all that stuff but just the layout was kind of funny it was it really looked like it had been a you know at some point had been an apartment and then, then they chopped it up and made a studio out of it so the sightlines were kind of funny, and you know so there was like one bigish room that drums sounded good in, mm-hmm. but then everything else was kind of isolated and
0: yeah sightlines I remember being not that great mm-hmm. what was what was Arif Martin's role like was he a pretty hands on guy in that situation yes and
1: no I mean you know Nora was a little bit touchy because of what had happened I think on the previous record where I think she felt like things got away from her like got out of her hands a little or something yeah Um, and so when we were working with Arif she you know wanted to do things her way and Arif was very I think respectful of that you know there, there were certain things that he needed to do his way because just that's how he would make records as far as like yeah you know how you would comp the vocals and mm-hmm. or things like um I think when we did I've got to see you again he wound up writing out a violin line you know he's like he's an he was an, he orchestrator. an orchestrator
0: right yeah
1: so anything that he could do where he could actually take out a score pad and hand somebody apart and say, hey, try playing this, mm-hmm. he would do that. And anything that he could do to kind of get a great vocal take out of Nora. I mean, she all of her vocal takes are great. She's just a very mm-hmm. natural
0: singer. But um, So she was recording her vocals separately, though? Like it wasn't, uh, you guys weren't playing as a band in that session?
1: No, I no, we no, we did play as a band and I think she did record live vocals and then would go back and do another pass and things mm. would be comped. That's how I remember it. But yeah. it was super I mean, like what you're asking about the Tracy Chapman session, this was even more organic. I mean, right. we were it was unorganic in the sense that we couldn't all be in the same room. Yeah. Uh just because of the way it was kind of cut up in a funny way. But yeah, no, it's a very live,
0: you know record yeah it's a beautiful sounding record so so the the core band for your part of the record the the redo part or Mm -hmm. whatever was you and brian blade or kenny wallison or both
1: i think both i know brian is on uh nightingale but i can't remember who is on come away with me i want to say it's kenny Mm -hmm. um uh, and it might even be somebody else. It might be Dan Reeser. I'd have to go back and, and okay. actually look, but then, you know, so like, um, the stuff that there's a song that Bill's on, which is called a uh, long day is over. Um, and that was something that was taken from the previous session, the Craig street session mm-hmm. and same with, um, the stuff that Kevin Bright is on. Like, uh, I think feeling the same way all over again is from that session. And, and then there was even something like actually, don't know why the one that wound up on the "Come Away with Me" record, don't know why, was taken from even before that. That was recorded from this initial small budget thing that Bruce Lundvall had asked her to do, where she just, you know, oh, had cool. a. And are
0: you are you on that as well? No, that session had Adam Rogers on it. Wow, it's a pretty cohesive record considering what went on. Yeah. Like, yeah, it it doesn't, it doesn't sound like that. It doesn't sound like it was done at all different times and with a bunch of different people, but yeah, that's funny.
1: I think that's kind of the miracle of that record is that, you know, it's, it feels organic. And when people talk about that record, I think they imagine it made in the most organic possible way. And, you know, it kind of was, but over three different sessions with really three different groups of musicians, Mm -hmm. different producers different engineers
0: um, yeah that's a dis- that's a disruptive way to make a record
1: yeah uh, and I think it's a testament to to a reef who was like really the last producer who had his hands on it and also to Jay, Jay Newland who um, you know is an engineer mixer producer himself and had a big hand in you know making that record sound the way it did. It's a testament to, to the art of those guys that the record sounds as cohesive as it does. And then, of course, just Nora's voice, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, that, is that kind of the thread you know? it all together.
0: After the record came out, um, were you guys like slogging it out in small little gigs for a period of time or did it, it, did it immediately go massive? I don't remember how that all happened. Like, was it, was it quick or was it like a long process?
1: Long process. Really? Yeah. Oh man. So
0: you were slogging it out for a while?
1: A while, yeah. We would get in the like we'd get in the van with like somebody from Blue Note and go like drive to Boston and you know play some opening gig for somebody at you know at like House of Blues or something. And like lots and lots and lots of little in store appearances and uh, funky little gig I think it, like kind of six months went by where we were still kind of just trying to work it out and, and then and then it clicked and suddenly we were like opening for people you'd heard of mm-hmm. and then you know suddenly we weren't were, opening anymore and we were able to actually headline small shows and then bigger shows and once it clicked it happened really fast but it, there was a, a period of about six months when it just was like it, it seemed kind of unremarkable it, it didn't seem like things were about to catch fire in the way that they ultimately did right at least not to me yeah i don't know i mean, not, I, mean I was having not to, sorry to say like i was having a good time yeah i would have been happy doing just what we did it would it was great just because the music was so fun to play you know so satisfying but really like i don't think i or anybody else really saw what was about to happen
0: right and, you know, there must be a million stories about that time or whatever, but, like, is there one or two things that stick out to you as, like, being the side guy to something that just goes absolutely bananas like that? Like, what, that doesn't, not very many people people get that opportunity to be in a sideman situation where things go from basically nothing to being mm. gigantic. Like, for you as a as a player in that situation, what was a highlight?
1: Uh, two, two moments, really. Stand out to me. One, uh, one was, you know, while we were slogging it out, we were playing this weekly gig at a club in Manhattan called Macor, uh-huh. which was part of this kind of like Jewish community center up near Lincoln Center and, and that you know that part of Manhattan. And you know, we played there for a long time, week in and week out, and we might be playing to a dozen people, and they, and the people that came were super fans and like they knew all her songs and they were excited mm-hmm. and then you know Rolling Stone if, at the end of every year publishes their like hot artists issue their hot yeah you know like here's who's going to be hot next year like and you know that issue was like John Mayer and somebody else and Nora Jones and the very next week this gig that we'd been playing forever for free. Like there was, this it wasn't even a ticketed show. It was like a free show at this kind of Jewish community center that had a bar. And all of a sudden the next week you couldn't get in. Right. Like (laughs) it was literally overnight from like playing to a dozen people to like turning people away mayhem. Yeah. Um, and I think really largely from that Rolling Stone piece. So that was a turning point. And then I remember like the first time that we got to play on David Letterman and like, you know, you show up and you're sound checking and like Willie comes over and he's like, Hey, you know, like when, when the, when those guys, the,
0: you know, you're in the club all of a sudden,
1: all of a sudden. And so, I mean, that really didn't have that much to do like the, with any, I don't know. Just for me, because I've been watching Letterman sure. for years. And, yeah, man. You know, like that felt like, yeah. I mean, you you said it. You're like when Willie comes over and like suddenly you're in the club. That really felt like something. So that that for me personally, it has nothing to do with like how many records Nora was selling or whatever. But mm-hmm. but just as a working side man, that I remember that feeling like a big moment for me.
0: Yeah, I bet. And and were you guys touring nonstop at that point? Like was there any downtime or were you and were you doing other things or was it just all Nora all the time? It was pretty much an all Nora all
1: the time. I I had an organ trio going around that time called Buttermilk Junior. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was living in New York uh, and I had another band. I had a, I was part of a band in New York called Lackawanna, mm-hmm. which again was an instrumental quartet with two guitar players. And I had to. F- that was a whole other. Th- back to what I was saying earlier about like playing with a se- another guitar player and having to carve out your own territory. Yeah. Uh, so anytime there was any kind of downtime with Nora, I would take uh, my Lackawanna never toured. We just played in New York, but Buttermilk Junior did do some tours. We pack the organ trio into the van and drive around the U.S. and, and play shows wherever we could. So that was how I kind of got my yah yahs out, mm-hmm. um, you know. Well, you know, it was starting to happen that the Nora gig was as as things got bigger, it was starting to just feel less uh, edgy, and you know, like you know, we we're playing kind of the same set every night, and it was a li- starting to feel a little bit more predictable. I mean, one one cool thing was that Nora didn't want things to sound the same every night. She just wanted them to sound good, you know? Yep. So she was open. She didn't want to hear the same guitar solo from the record or any, any kind of stupid stuff like that. Oh, she was really cool. open. But I still needed to have outlets where I could just, you know, do other stuff.
0: So yeah. I, yeah, I
1: was always doing other stuff when I could, yeah. Uh-huh.
0: Um, and that and that second record that you did with her also, um, I mean, I, to me, that's actually a cooler record, I, I, I think. I, I always thought that that was a more cohesive record or something, or I I don't know. There's something about it that I like better, but was that a weird session in the way that like the expectations for a second record from her must've been crazy high?
1: Yeah. um, Yeah. For sure. The stakes were higher there. I don't don't remember at the time feeling like um, that pressure, you know, whether she felt it, I, I couldn't say, but you know, for us, it it felt like a a very luxurious record because the first record for the part that I was on was pretty rushed. Like we were in a, in a studio where you, you wouldn't just stay there another day to do one small thing. It's like you, the cost of being there for a day was, was substantial. Mm -hmm. And you know, the cost of having all those people there was substantial. It felt like when we made the second record, we could take a little longer to, get stuff the way that Nora wanted. So mm-hmm. I, I feel like there was the, pr- yeah, it's interesting. I hadn't thought of that before. I mean, yes, in a corporate way, the pressure was on. When you sell millions of records, I'm sure the record company is trying to figure out how can we sell more mm-hmm. records. Yeah. And you know, whereas Nora, I think to her credit, wanted to, to make an artful record.
0: And, yeah, she seems know, to have never really like sold out from that in any way. Like she's always just kind of done what she's wanted to do. It feels like hell. Yeah, yeah, that's
1: Nora Jones.
0: Mm-hmm. That's what she does. So, you know, she got
1: to include uh, Garth Hudson, and she got to include Levon Helm on a song. Dolly Parton, who sang her ass off. Were you there for that part? I was, and it was just magic. Yeah. It was incredible. She. I mean, it was a lesson in badassery. Like, she, <laughs> she had done her homework. Like, she showed up. Like, she knew that song backwards and forwards. She did just, like, a couple of takes and nailed it. Yeah. And said thanks and left. And, like, the whole studio, like, smelled really good. Yeah. And- had this great energy for like the whole rest of the day. It was like she's just one, she is one of those people that walks into a room and the room is changed. Wow. You know, Garth Hudson, who musically was incredible to be in a room with, like but you know, kind of a, a more craggy character. Like yeah. he showed up, he had this leather jacket that had embossed on the back of his leather jacket, it just said, The Road. <laughs> <laughs> and he had this kind of cragginess that I loved but it all it reminded me a little bit of did you ever see Raising Arizona? Yes. The kind of bad guy who rides a
0: motorcycle. Yeah, I know who you mean. That guy that's yeah. like, in all those movies yeah. back then.
1: Like if they made a movie about Garth that guy would would play him. I mean, there was some but then you know, once he started playing, all that cragginess kind of like cracked away. There was at one point where he and Arif sat down at the piano together and they had never met before, even though they were like similar generation really? and <laughs> and started playing like all this Ellington stuff, like four hands on the piano. I wish it was recorded. Wow. Like it was just so beautiful to be in the room for that, you know? Mm hmm.
0: I bet. Actually, just one other record I wanted to ask you about doing, which is a lot more recent. Um, I just wondered what your experience was like playing on that last Alan Toussaint record um, with Joe Henry. Uh, I I don't know how much you played on it, but I I love that record, and and I know you're on it, so I just wondered what your yeah. experience was like for that.
1: Yeah. Well, I'm just I'm just on one song. I'm on the song "American Tune," which is the oh, yeah. Paul Simon song. Yeah.
0: And um, you know they had
1: done a bunch of days with the full band with, I think with Bill and Greg Lease and, um, Jay, Jay, Jay Belrose and Dave Pilch. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think they had kind of hit all the marks that they had wanted to hit and they had had one more day booked. Um, and so Joe had a couple of things up his sleeve just in case that happened. And so he, he asked Alan about doing, uh, American Tune, which is a song that he'd been doing, you know, live for a few years, but I don't think he had recorded it before. Mm-hmm. So Joe c- called me in at the last minute and said, Hey, you know, are you free? And, you know, would you want to play on this Alan Tuesday? <laughs> I'm like, No, I'm not Whoa. free, man. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think I have an ophthalmologist appointment <laughs> or something, but, um, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I cancelled my root canal or whatever, and um no i just I dropped everything because I loved Alan, yeah, so I learned the song as best as i could i I learned the original Paul Simon guitar part, but you know, I had no idea what key he was gonna do it in or if he was gonna completely rearrange i mean, i just I thought the best thing I could do was get to know the Paul Simon record and then go from there kinda go from there and just listen and um. As it turns out, he did it in the same key, which was cool because it's it really lays nicely in C, which is that's how Paul Simon recorded it. And, uh, you know, we started doing it and at first everybody was playing all at once. And after a couple takes, it felt like it was kind of a bit crowded. And so Joe said, hey, why don't we try this? Why don't we have it just be like vocal and guitar for the first verse? Mm. So now we're like, you know, into this session and. And I've got my headphones on, and I start playing the song, and all the only thing in the headphones is my guitar and Alan's voice. Oh my god! And I'm just like shaking with joy and crying almost because like the song is such a beautiful song, and is, and Alan's yeah. voice is so special, and and um and somehow I got through it without you know just becoming a a complete mess, but, but it was I mean inside, I really had
0: to like pinch yourself,
1: yeah, pinch myself and steal myself and get through it and just be a pro, which is what you're supposed to do and um anyway, we went through a few takes and then Alan was happy, and Joe was happy, and I think there the piano that you hear on it was overdubbed. Oh. But kind of like right afterwards. I yeah. mean, I think Joe wanted to get a great vocal take first and foremost. Yeah. And one, once they had decided on the take, Alan went back and added the the okay. piano to it. There was one more thing that they recorded, which was uh, Van Dyke Parks came in and they did this duet on Southern Nights that was just two pianos. Right. And they played like the longest most psychedelic version of it that you could imagine. And I think <laughs> it was edited down for release, but it was just this incredible thing. You know, not unlike what I heard uh Arif and Garth do. It was like the uh-huh. same kind of like just exploration of American music. You know, that's and, what um, Van Dyke's good at. Yeah. Yeah. So after that, everybody just sat in the control room. This was at United Recording in Hollywood. And we listened to the whole record down, all the, all the takes that had been decided as final takes. We listened to the whole album. Wow! And Alan's—I don't know if she was his wife or his, but his, you know, his lady, his partner, um, maybe his wife. I—I I, don't—I don't know him. I didn't know him enough to know his situation. Yeah. But anyway, she she had made pralines like two different kinds. So you know, we're all eating these beautiful, sweet oh treats, God. and lis- listening to this incredible music. And um and then he you know he's in like a, this suit with a funky shirt and sandals which is kind of was what he always wore yeah and yeah. then he said all right I'm out of here uh I'll see y'all at the Vanguard because when he had made his previous record the bright Mississippi yeah when that came out he did a week at the Village Vanguard with the band in New York okay and so that was the that was his idea he's like all right I'll see you at the Vanguard and then like you know. I think like not even a month later he died on tour yeah
0: yeah in europe or whatever in europe yeah oh man uh and so you would have done that gig with him do you think well i don't know i mean who knows Uh, had you worked with joe henry before or was that a first as well i had
1: done a couple of things with joe before that
0: but not not much Mm -hmm. A, a, a couple of things Well, that's a pretty spectacular session to get the call for, man. If you're going to get a call, it might as well be for that one. (laughs) Oh
1: man! Oh man! I mean, if I never do another session as long as I live, that would still be like something I would look back on as like just a highlight of 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 my whole musical life of my life, you know. Period.
0: Yeah, it's pretty great to have moments like that, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I can't relate to that exact moment but i i have similar things in my life and it's yeah things like that that you can hang your hat on that that are like career moments that what's one for you well recently i did did a show with where i was like a band leader arranger guy with um john hammond and david hidalgo we were all on stage together and and I do remember looking over just going, shit, man, this is crazy. I can't believe I'm <laughs> even up here doing this. Wow. These guys are both Whoa. like big, big deals for me. And, you know, we, we oh, did, yeah. we did a, something with Hidalgo where he, he didn't want to play even, he just wanted to sing it. Uh, mm. And I was playing pedal steel and, and he sang so beautifully and he started crying in the middle of the song. And it was just like, mm. you, you got to be kidding me. I can't believe this is happening. You wow. know, we finished the song in the rehearsal and, and he was crying then. And he said, It's your pedal steel, man. I'm just, just makes me cry. And it was like, Oh, I, I, I kind of figured like I could, re- I could, I could call it quits. <laughs> oh. Whoa. So that was, that, that was a big one. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So it's good to have moments like that. Oh, man. Man. Love hearing all this stuff, man. And I, I really appreciate you, um, taking the time to, talk to me about this stuff and sure yeah yeah i hope to i hope to meet you one of these days and um i don't know if you ever play in nashville uh,
1: for whatever reason i don't wind up there that much but next time i do i will i'll definitely um give you uh, give you a haul or i should come out there my friend anthony DeCosta is living out there now yeah
0: he was just over here a, l- a couple months ago i met him here at my studio um
1: yeah we made a record Actually, we made a record that just, that came out this year, just the, just the two of us. Oh, you did? Okay. Uh, yeah, I should send you that record. It, I think it came out really good. On which, just to, this would be a good <laughs> button here, uh, on which I did a cover of a David Hidalgo song. Oh, which one? Uh, it's called If You Were Only Here Tonight. All right, Steve. Well, thank you
0: so much. Yeah, well, thank you. you. Yeah, you too. Thank, thank you very much. All right, that was my conversation with Adam Levy. I sure hope you enjoyed listening to it. I enjoyed making it. Please head on over to iTunes and leave a review if you feel so inclined. We'll see you next week for another episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Music Makers and Soul Shakers is recorded at the Hen House Studio in Nashville, Tennessee. Please visit us online at www.stevedawson.ca. Thanks always to Jeremy Holmes in Vancouver for his help with research and to Michael Glusak for editing, music placement, and mixing.